You may be seated. I would like to introduce our preacher this evening, Father Jerry McDermott. Uh, Father Jerry works at uh, Beeson Divinity School, where he serves as the Anglican Chair of Divinity. Uh, Beeson is in Birmingham, Alabama, a good seminary, um, producing lots of good priests and pastors for the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, Jerry and I, without knowing it, uh, both arrived at Roanoke College in Virginia at the same time. I did my first year of college there before deciding on a different path in the fall of 89, and that's when Jerry started there. But just a few years ago, moved to Beeson to take up this Anglican Chair uh, of Divinity position. Uh, we also found out at lunch today, uh, he said, oh, there's another connection, Greg, and he got his phone out and he read a text from his son, who's a priest uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, and said, um, so Father Greg Peters, tell him that he married friends of mine, uh, Adam, or not Adam, uh, Alex and Jane Elmore. And this is a small world because, Jerry, even you don't know this, but the day after I married Alex and Jane, I married uh, Josh and Anna Barber there the day after. So um, back in 2009. So it's a small world, um, and we're, we're fortunate and uh, thankful that you're here with us this evening, Father Jerry. So please, whatever the Lord has laid on your heart, please share with us. Well, thank you so much, um, 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 Father Greg. Uh, it is my great joy to be here. I bring greetings from Christ the King Anglican Church in Birmingham and Beeson Divinity School. And, uh, you know, I've heard about your church, this church. Uh, this church is a shining star in, in the uh, firmament of the Anglican Church in North America. And I've been overjoyed to meet your rector, Greg. We find out we're fellow scholars. We're very much on the same page in terms of our vision of the faith and particularly Anglicanism. And I look forward to working together with Father Greg in the future. Well, this is the second Sunday of Advent. <clears throat> and as you probably know, Advent is a Latin, it comes from the Latin word for coming. And it refers, as we Anglicans know, and a lot of fellow Christians don't, not only to the coming, to the first coming of the Messiah at Christmas, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, but actually on the second day of Advent, because of the focus on John the Baptist, it is a preparation for the second coming of Christ, particularly. Um, so Advent is really all about preparing and the gospel introduces us to the number one preparer, John the Baptist, whom Isaiah prepared the world for in his prophecy that someday there will be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now the gospel text tells us how to prepare. And the first thing it suggests, it seems to me, is that we should prepare, particularly for the second coming, which, which could be tonight, it could be tomorrow, it could be before we celebrate the first coming. The, but that the first thing that we should do to prepare for the second coming is to know that God will close history because he's a God of history. 
Now let's listen to the text in uh, Luke 3, which Father Greg just read for us. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now Tiberius Caesar, we know, started his reign in 14 AD. So this is either, this is sometime in, in uh, between 28 and 29 AD. Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Now, you know, a lot of skeptical scholars for many decades said, we're, we're not sure the gospels are really about history. We know it's what the early church said, but the gospels were written decades after the event and maybe they just sort of made them up to fit their needs of the early church in the 60s or probably 70s, decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So how do we know there really was a Pontius Pilate? Well, in 1961, excavators were working at Caesarea right on the shore of the Mediterranean. Beautiful place if you ever, have any of you ever been to Caesarea? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And they found an inscription from the first century, Pontius Prefectus, Pontius the, the prefect of Judea. He was a man from real history. Herod, Tetrarch, um, Tetrarch of Galilee. Now this was Herod um, Antipas, one of the four sons of Herod the Great. This is the Herod who executed John the Baptist. And the time of his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, now that's in modern day Syria, and Trachonitis, that's in modern day Jordan, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, that's up in the mountains by modern day Damascus and also ancient Damascus. Verse two, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, now, there was only one high priest at a time back in the first century. But Annas, so Annas was retired, but like our American presidents, retired high priests retain the title, just as we heard last week at the burial of President George H.W. Bush. And Annas was the real power behind the scenes for his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest. Now what leaps out, what leaps off the page when, when, uh, when you read these first few verses in this passage of Luke 3 is, that, is the emphasis that Luke is placing on historical events and historical people. Our God came into real history, not like the legends of the Buddha's miracles, for example. And I refer to the Buddha because I think California, in California, there's a lot of Buddhists. Uh, we know there was a Buddha, but it's probable, and even Buddhist scholars uh, who call themselves Buddhists will confess that the Buddha probably didn't do any miracles, that these stories of, of the Buddha's miracles uh, are mythical and not historical. Or it's like the exploits of Krishna. I, I don't know if there are many Hindus. There probably are quite a few Hindus in California. There are some Hindus in, in Birmingham, Alabama. 
And even good devoted Hindus who know something about their history will concede that the exploits of Krishna are probably mythical and not historical. If you ever doubt, and most good Christians doubt from time to time, C.S. Lewis, who was one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century, the greatest apologist of the 20th century, went through a profound period of doubt after his wife died. And if you ever just, you know, the devil hits you with doubt. I mean, maybe this is all just who knows what. Remember the stubborn fact. Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure in real history. And unlike any other founder of world religions, Jesus of Nazareth, of, of Nazareth said, I am God in the flesh. The Buddha said, I'm just a man, don't worship me. Muhammad said, I'm just a man, don't worship me. Confucius said, I'm just a man, don't worship me. Lao Tzu, the, you know, um, the founder of philosophical Taoism, said, I'm, I'm just a man, don't even think about worshiping. And there is no God, anyway. Jesus is the only religious founder in history who in real history said, I am God, come in the flesh. The Father and I are one. When, when you see me, you see the Father. So Luke is telling us here on this second Sunday of Advent that our God is a God of history. And he sent his son in his first coming who will come again in his second coming someday, maybe even this week, to close history that he entered, entered into 2,000 years ago. So Advent is preparation. It's all about preparation. Preparation for the end of history when the God who entered history in incontrovertible fashion will, will, will bring history to a close. Now verse 2b. The word of God came to John the Baptist in, in the wilderness. Now, why the wilderness? Well, the early church, fairly reliable tradition, tells us that Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were, who were John the Baptist's parents, died. Since they were very old when he was born, they died when he was very young as a boy. And he was sent by relatives to live with the Essenes down by the Dead Sea. And the Essenes were very uh, dedicated Jews who lived in the howling winds of the desert with animals and Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the center of the Jewish Bible. That's why John the Baptist probably was in the wilderness. But why did the word God, why, you know, why, why, why does, does scripture tell us that the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness? Because in the wilderness, you're usually alone. It's a great place for solitude. And the word of God came to most of the prophets in the Old Testament when they were alone. It's a word to us in Advent. During this, these weeks of Advent, we, we should seek time to be alone because that's when the word of God especially can come to us. Now as Anglicans, we have the great blessing of the daily office, morning prayer and evening prayer. And I encourage you in Advent, if, if, if you haven't gotten into that yet, 
Or if you did and you've fallen away, get back into the daily office, the daily lectionary, which gets you into the word of God alone in the morning and the evening. And, the word of, and let the word of God speak to you, come to you like he came to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the great preparer. But why John the Baptist? Why should he be the great preparer? Well, John the Baptist, as Jesus said, was a prophet and more than a prophet. And the role of the prophet in the Bible is to prepare God's people for his kingdom. And the greatest of all the prophets in the Old Testament was Elijah. At the transfiguration, it was Elijah who represented all the prophets and Moses who represented the law, the law and the prophets, the summation of the Old Testament. Now, we, our first reading was from Malachi 3 tonight. And Malachi 3 and 4, in Malachi 3 and 4, and Malachi was the last prophet before the famous intertestamental period, the 400 years uh, before the coming of the Messiah, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke through Malachi in chapters 3 and 4 to say that before the Messiah comes, Yahweh is going to send a messenger. And the messenger will be Elijah. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus told his disciples that John the Baptist is Elijah. In some mysterious way, Elijah came in and through John the Baptist. Now, there's another reason why John the Baptist is a preparer, not only because Elijah was prophesied to come before the Messiah and to prepare the world for the Messiah, and John the Baptist, in some mysterious sense, is Elijah. It has to do with typology, but, but you've probably heard about that from Father Greg. Uh, but there's another reason why John the Baptist, I think, is the preparer, preparing us as a prophet for the king and the kingdom of God, and particularly a second coming, is because prophets need courage. Now, now Elijah had courage. He faced down Ahab and Jezebel over their idolatry. And John the Baptist had courage. He faced down Herod Antipas because of his adultery and lost his head for it. Jesus was also a prophet. He was priest and king, but he was also prophet. The Messiah was prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, as a prophet, faced down the greatest powers of Rome and Jerusalem. And as we know, he too died because of the truth and the witness that he bore. So John the Baptist, as a prophet in the spirit of Elijah, reminds us during this Advent that as we prepare for the second coming, we're probably going to need courage. This church is going to need courage as it faces a culture that is at war with the kingdom of God. You all are going to need courage. And, and Advent is a good time to ask God to give you the courage that you need, that John the Baptist had, to prepare yourself to prepare us all for, for not only the second coming, but, but the uh, uptick in the level of spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light that is, that is coming our way. Verse, verse 3, and he went into all the region of, of the Jordan, 
on the Jordan Valley, preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, you know, we, we think of baptism as a Christian sacrament, and it is. It's, a Christian, it, it's, it's the sacrament of entry into the kingdom of God, which we're going to see in a few minutes. But baptism is a Jewish rite. But it was a rite that Jews practiced on Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And they believed that it washed away all those Gentile sins. But John the Baptist was baptizing not Gentiles, but Jews down in the Jordan Valley. So it took great humility for these Jews coming to John the Baptist to, to, to undergo baptism, which normally was given only to Gentiles, to wash away particularly Gentile sins. So these Jews had to humble themselves and said, yes, I am guilty of sins just like those filthy Gentiles. And that is a phrase that, that, that was used back then. And John the Baptist was an epitome, was the epitome of humility. He said of Jesus, his own cousin, I must decrease and he must increase. So it, uh, baptism, but it's a baptism of repentance. Now, this is very Jewish. The Hebrew word for repentance is shuv, and it means to turn. So it means that I'm going in this direction. repentance, shuv, turning. It, it's a turning from where I'm going and turning toward another direction. Now it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now this is not the forgiveness of sin in salvation, but it's a preparation for salvation. Luke is telling us that John the Baptist was prepared for. He was planned by God. He was prophesied by God. Uh, and, and that's what he tells us in the last verses of this passage, uh, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, the vo he is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now in the ancient world, when a king would come to a city, and he would tell the city ahead, long ahead of time, I'm going to come on such and such a date. The leaders of the city would go to all the citizens of the city, or slaves particularly, and say, we've got to make the road coming into our city glorified to befit the glory of the king. So where that road is real crooked, you've got to straighten it out. Where that road goes up that mountain and down, you've got to shave off the top of the mountain to make it more level. And where that road goes down in that deep valley and makes it so uncomfortable to walk on, fill in the valley. So the king comes on a road that is glorious, befitting his glory. Now Isaiah says in, in this passage that Luke quotes that God is coming. And we have to make the road in our heart ready to receive the God of glory. And John the Baptist says, we make the road in our heart ready to receive. We prepare the road in our heart. We fill in the valleys of that road in our heart. We 
shave off the tops of the mountains of that road in our heart. We make those crooked places in our hearts straight in order to prepare ourselves, our hearts, to receive the king of the kingdom. And you know, Messiah really means king. Meshiach. So we have to do all this. These, these are all different ways of describing, of describing repentance. And that's what John the Baptist says, was saying that they had to do, and that's what this passage and what our season of the year of Advent is telling us to do, to prepare for the second coming of the Messiah by repenting, by turning, shuv, turning, um, uh, you know, turning around, turning from the direction in which we have been going, perhaps, and turning toward a new direction. So toward what? Well, we find out in uh, what we turn toward in the Philippians passage that, 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 that was read today, uh, where Paul says, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So we turn toward love, we turn toward knowledge, and we turn toward discernment. Now love, love I would define as doing the right thing for others even when we don't want to. Perfect picture of love is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he didn't want to go to the cross. He begged the Father that he wouldn't have to go. But eventually he reconciled himself to the Father's will and he went. That's true love. It's just the opposite of following our feelings. And Jesus particularly emphasized love for enemies. You know, sometimes our enemies can be in our own family or maybe our erstwhile friends. This summer, I went to uh, Joss, Nigeria, and I got to know one of the bravest men in the world, an Anglican priest named Mark Mukan. Mark is about 40 years old. He is the father of seven children. Three or four of them are, are adopted by him because they were poor kids out in the street. And they have enough money to have one meal a day, sometimes one and a half meals a day. And uh, you have to know that in Joss, Nigeria, uh, radical Muslims have been murdering Christians. Since 2001, Boko Haram, that's a group of radical Muslims, have murdered, massacred somewhere between 20 and 50,000 Christians. Just since January 1st of this year, 6,000 Christians have been massacred by Boko Haram and their allies, the Fulani herdsmen. In the middle uh, belt of Nigeria, Joss is the epicenter, and also in northern Nigeria. Now, Boko Haram's headquarters is, is, is in a small city. And Father Mark has planted a church in this small city right under the noses of Boko Haram. And he drove me by it. And I said, Father Mark, aren't you afraid? I mean, your wife could become a widow. Your children could be fatherless. I mean, you're doing very dangerous things. You're planting a church right under the noses of the most murderous group in Africa. And they're killing you, the Christians. And he said, Jerry, he said, God has shown me so much love in Jesus. Jesus 
has given me so much love. How can I not share that love with these people who really need it? So love, knowledge and discernment. Knowledge, John Chrysostom, the great father of the church, said the cause of all evil is to fail to know scriptures well. The scriptures well. This Advent, why, why don't you redouble your aim to know the scriptures well and do the daily office, the morning and evening prayer, and follow the lectionary and let the Lord speak to you through the scriptures. And finally, discernment. Paul says, love, knowledge, and discernment. Discernment. In, in Hebrews 5.14, we're told, mature Christians have the power of discernment because they've been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So discernment is not a one-time thing. Discernment is a process. And it comes from practice. Practice. John Henry Newman said the way to grow in discernment is to immediately obey the whisper of the Holy Spirit in your conscience. And then when... when when you obey the will of God that the Holy Spirit is telling you in your conscience, then you will be given more discernment. But you're not going to be given any discernment unless you obey immediately the voice of the Holy Spirit in your conscience. So let us prepare the way of the Lord in our heart. Prepare for the coming of the Lord by growing in love, knowledge, and discernment. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this season of Advent, which is a season of preparing. And we pray you'd help us to grow in love. Help us to do the right thing when we don't want to, especially toward our enemies. We pray for knowledge of your scriptures, that you would help us to listen to your voice, speak to us through your scriptures during Advent. And we pray that you'd help us to grow in discernment, by obeying the, the, the whisper of the Holy Spirit in our conscience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.